Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. And welcome to another edition of This Week in Clean Tech, a roundup of the week's biggest stories you need to know in climate and clean energy in 15 minutes or less. Today is Friday, August 4th, 2023. I'm Renewable Energy World Senior Content Director John Ingle, joined again by TigerCom President and Clean Tech PR veteran Mike Casey. Mike, it's great to see you. Mr. Engel. You know, um, we're getting in the rhythm of doing this thing, but I'm finding that it's actually hard to go through five stories in 15 minutes. That's my conclusion from the first two episodes. And it's also hard to say the correct date. So my only goal going (laughs) into this episode was to properly identify the day of the week. And I think that I've done that. Can we get a a check on that? August 4th, correct? Yeah. (laughs) I think you, uh, I think you've set a low bar for us, John, and I appreciate it because I think we'll both be able to clear that one. Yeah, good. All right, Mike, you want to get us started? Yeah, you bet. And just want to say to our our, uh, listeners and our viewers, hey, we want you to be part of the show. So please give us feedback on how this is working for you, uh, format, et cetera, and make sure that you send us suggestions on the stories that you want to see us cover. These have to be published stories. These aren't news releases, but these are stories that have run in mainstream media you think make the cut for the top five of the week. So we're going to go to our first one. That is, uh, number one, we've got another Fred Dvorak story in the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. clean energy company that hit the subsidiaries jackpot. This story reports that uh, the big U.S. solar equipment maker, First Solar, expects to receive as much as $710 million this year, nearly 90% of forecasted operating profits from IRA subsidies. John, what do you think of the story? Yeah, it probably comes as no surprise that the company that was maybe most vocal for the Inflation Reduction Act and the Solar Energy Manufacturing for America Act um, on the solar side is best positioned to cash in on the incentives within the legislation. And that's in large part due to the, the supply chain intricacies of thin film manufacturing not requiring the Chinese and Southeast Asian inputs that, that um, crystalline manufacturing does. Uh, but I, I think it's obvious that First Solar is extending that gap between them and everyone else when it comes to domestic manufacturing and making sure they're compliant with the IRA. So, I mean, I think they've got a great story to tell. I think it remains to be seen if China's dominance in solar manufacturing can be lowered, but we're all in, at least in, in our shop on American Made, because making panels in the U.S. and the EU cleaner economies uh, produces way less of a carbon pollution footprint than it does in making them in coal power uh, factories here in China. John, I'm going to give you a one-question quiz. Uh-oh. To make a 40-pound panel in western China, how much coal needs to be burned? Just take a guess. Uh, I don't know, Mike. A lot of coal? 520 pounds per 40-pound panel. 
It's a lot. So I do worry, i got to say, this story is going to be used by the fossil fuel lobby to try to turn first solar into another cylinder. It is not, but uh, I do think there's a chance that that will get weaponized against them. So that remains to be seen. But, John, what's our second story? Kat Clifford from CNBC wrote uh, about Votal Unit 3 nuclear reactor coming online after long delays and uh, cost overruns. So the first new 1100 megawatt nuclear reactor built from scratch in the U.S. entered commercial operation on July 31st. So that was Monday. Votal Unit 3 is now online after seven years of delays and at a cost of nearly $35 billion. I think that was double the initial estimates, Mike. What do you think? I think this is further proof that a broken clock is right twice a day. I mean, despite the nuclear bros that tend to swarm LinkedIn at the very mention of carbon pollution, I think the story shows that nuclear remains a government-funded money pit. Uh, the commencement of this plant's operations show nuclear's continued problems, not a reason to enable more of it. How about you, John? Well, I don't think I'm ready to cast aside nuclear altogether, but I do think this is one of those stories where it's difficult to tell if it's a victory or a cautionary tale. You know, we need as much firm, clean power on the grid as we can get, but we clearly still don't know how to do that efficiently and cost effectively at scale with nuclear. Mike, what's our third story? I, I really like this one. Adele Peters and Fast Company has one. MIT engineers developed a new type of concrete that can store energy. They've mixed what they call carbon black, a, condu a conductive black powder into concrete, producing a network of carbon wires that act like a supercapacitor that can hold electric charges. What do you think of that, John? Yeah, I think this is going to be one of those where you get really excited about climate and clean tech, and I'm more of the clean energy infrastructure guy. So I think that this <laughs> research is certainly important, and we need solutions like this maybe eventually, but we're a far cry away from charging electric vehicles as they drive down the road. And that mention alone um, is likely to get the, the general public excited, but you're going to get some eye rolls from people in the industry who say we have a lot of near-term problems that, that need solutions today. Um, Mike, what was your thoughts on that piece overall? I think that Brian, our producer, needs to put Debbie Downer under your caption on this episode. That's Realist. what I think. But <laughs> I love this story because it's the latest example of people doing really smart, innovative things in the space. And I, I love this quote. If used in place of regular concrete, this could potentially act as an energy for rooftop solar panels or even for EBs to charge as they drive, end quote. And John, I, in all seriousness, I'm with you that some of these innovations are going to succeed. Some of them will not, even though some of those that fail should succeed. But I think this is the sort of innovation we need to keep driving the clean energy transition forward. It's definitely a long shot, but the energy transition really needs a cheap, scalable storage medium that can fit with existing infrastructure. Uh, John, what's our fourth story? Yeah, really important one uh, from the USA uh, from USA Today. Deep sea mining could help fuel renewable energy. Here's why it's been put on hold. So this story details the arguments in the debate about mining the seafloor for critical minerals, about those challenges of getting interna international agreements in place for tearing up the seabed, all with those pros and cons. Why do you think this one made the cut, Mike? Well, I'm a fan of Beth Weiss, and I think she does some great reporting here on the conundrum of how we're going to solve a global sustainability problem through industrial means. And there's going to be a mess along the way, and I think we've got to 
select the least messy, most cost-effective route to get to a livable planet. Now, that said, in this country, we tend to go fast and figure out the long-term consequences later. All you have to do is look at the damage we've inflicted already on the ocean through this massive amount of plastic pollution. And I think we need to be confident that tearing up the seabed to get at minerals that we need is the most cost-effective and least messy way to do it rather than expedient for the mining industry. I think it's clear that a functioning healthy ocean is something that once lost will be nearly impossible to get back. And I think that's really the hinge question. So I love the story for setting up the issue. I think it's far from resolved. Totally agree. Um, you know, sourcing critical minerals is dicey on on sea or land, and and I don't think we have the perfect equation yet for either. It's it's messy as you put it, but we also have major concerns about links to you know human rights uh, abuses and the the carbon intensity of how we are mining and collecting these minerals, and it's it's striking that balance of um, how do we limit the damage we're doing today while not going too slow in addressing climate change? And I don't think anyone really has that answer yet. But it's important that we don't ignore this one and don't try to only move forward with the moral obligation of fighting climate change at our backs. We do need to talk about this tough stuff, too, or it's going to come to bite us down the road. Mike, how about the last story? Yeah, so number five is an interesting piece by two Reuters reporters, uh, Valerie Volkovici and Nicola Groom. U.S. moves to link more wind and solar projects to the electric grid. And this is one where the U.S. regulators are approving moves to connect new power sources to the grid faster and rationalize the connection queue. John, what did you think of this piece? I think that this has the potential of being one of the biggest stories in our space for the entire year. I mean, everyone from the developer community, asset owners, utilities, grid operators, everyone has been waiting for this um, ruling to come out of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission since this process started, uh, I think, last summer, almost a year ago. And it it addresses a a clear bottleneck and one of the biggest hindrances to the energy transition that's interconnection and working your way through the queue. So it couldn't have come at a better time and really happy to talk about this with Valerie. You know, interconnection is one of the big barriers to clean energy transition, and there's a lot of what I'll call project spam that that clogs the interconnection queues. Mm -hmm. And um, a buddy of mine, Rob Gramlich, was quoted in this story. He notes that um, ordering the queue based on readiness is good, but it doesn't really – it doesn't get at the underlying transmission constraints. Um, Princeton's Jesse Jenskins, who runs the the Zero Lab, their estimates will miss 80% of the carbon – pollution reduction benefits from the IRA if we don't increase the rate of building transmission lines. So I think all of that's true. And, you know, Confucius said, better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. And I think that the clean energy transition is going to be a, a process of lighting a lot of candles to get to fully illuminate the energy room here. And I think that's why you're right. This is an important um, development. And Valerie has agreed to join us to talk about the story. So, Valerie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. So I'd like to know what drew you to this piece and what do you think the big takeaways should be for people working in clean tech who read it? Sure. Well, um, you know, as as you've been watching, you know, this is something that's been under development for a year. And in thinking about, you know, different stories about, you know, how the Inflation Reduction Act is being implemented and what are some of the the barriers? I mean, this is one that 
came up all the time, this kind of enormous backlog of renewable energy projects um, that are waiting to connect to the grid. So, you know, we knew that FERC was working on something, you know, they, they had said they were aiming for the summer and then they actually delivered this summer. So I think uh, that that in itself seemed to be an accomplishment that they, you know, they said they were going to do it by the summer and they've, uh, you know, kind of voted unanimously to do it. And I think it's it, it sounds like it's it's a welcome first step, but you know, as as you pointed to, Rob, you know, Rob Gramlish said it. You know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, and uh, some of the the heavier lifts are still underway at FERC. So, Valerie, some of the the top line things that I take away from from your piece and and just the the ruling from FERC is first ready, first served was something we knew was probably coming. Um, the consistency piece of having a nationwide framework for an interconnection, I think, is huge for developers navigating all of these regulatory environments. Um, cluster studies will be huge. And then these increased obligations financially for both utility and developer to stay honest with the process, you know, eliminate speculative projects and eliminate um, the drawing out of the queue. But I, I want to drill down into that good first step point that I've heard. I, all the press releases I got with statements from, you know, the advocacy organizations and trade groups say great first step, but more needs to be done. Did you get a good idea for what they're looking for and what that more needs to be in that next step? Right. Well, it sounds like the, the, the next step is the, the stuff that, uh, that Willie Phillips said uh, FERC is working on right now, um, just looking at the other transmission reforms, uh, looking at cost allocation. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I think some of the fees and that kind of predictability can help weed out some of the, the speculative plays, but, um, you know, it's unclear whether, um, you know, there, what improvements are, are being, have been done to the actual interconnection studies, whether they, you know, whether they're still going to be kind of um, overly burdensome, um, you know, what, what the, the, um, the developers will still need to do. So I think there's still uncertainty about how this will play out. But, you know, they, they, they tackled some of the reforms that some of the regional um, operators have started to, to already play with. So um, I think that's why it, it was a good first step, but um, they, they've got they've got their work cut out for them. Valerie, do you, Nicola, share John's sense of the importance of this development? I mean, it's I, I do as well, but I wanted to know if it's you all cover a lot of policy developments. It's which kind of what you do for a living. So <laughs> where would you put this in on the scale of importance? I think it's quite high on the scale of importance. Uh, we had uh, recently we had uh, John Podesta uh, you know, come and talk to some reporters, uh, Reuters about IRA implementation, and one thing that he really um, honed in on was the fact that there needs to be um, these steps taken to address the backlog and to kind of reform uh, the transmission system. So we know that the Biden administration sees this as a, a top priority. And, um, you know, it's clear from, you know, from people doing projects out there, they, they've got the opportunity, but uh, what is the, what is the overall benefit of uh, having the IRA investment if they can't actually get those megawatts on the grid? So I think it's huge. Um, and I think it also puts, you know, keeps the pressure on FERC. People are now really paying attention 
to this interconnection issue. And they're going to be kind of putting the pressure on FERC to, to deliver the other pieces of the puzzle. John, we are about out of time. I want to give a shout out to our terrific producer, Brian Mendez, and to Alex Peterson, Claire Quirin, and Phoebe Lees for helping us identify this week's top stories. Yeah, and thanks to Valerie Volkovici from Reuters for joining us for this episode of This Week in Clean Tech. Please remember to subscribe, give us feedback, and share your story suggestions with us each week. And you can also read all of those stories, including Valerie's, that we discussed this week by clicking the links in the episode description. Make sure you check out Monday's episode of The Fact of This Podcast. We'll be talking about interconnection, but at the distributed level in the Northeast. You won't want to miss that one. Um, Mike, it was great doing this. I think this was a good one. It was really good. John, I'm going to wish you a good weekend, and I'll see you next week. All right. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.